Yeah, if you grew up Catholic or Lutheran or even in some Protestant denominations, chances are you grew up with something called the Apostles' Creed. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. You understand that hundreds and hundreds of years ago, most people didn't have a copy of the Bible, so church leaders wanted to give the basic facts of Jesus to people so that they could at least have just that cursory overview of the key things about Christianity. So if you grew up with the Apostles' Creed, you're familiar with these words. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his holy son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then this line, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. How many of you, how many of you said that in the mornings if you went to Catholic school or if you, if you went to uh, church and maybe that was one of the first things that happened in the service? Well, who is this Pontius Pilate guy? Today, I want to talk to you about him, and I want to tell you his story. But before I do, I need to let you know something about this message. Um, my wife and I, we have an interesting marriage. I am not a detail person unless I'm interested in the details. I just want people to get to the bottom line. My wife, on the other hand, is a very analytical thinker, and details are just part of her world. And so throughout the almost 40 years that we've been married and then the five years we dated before that, when we were in discussion, I would have some form, and I would never be this blunt if I'm smart, I would have some blunt, well, some way of saying, would you just please get to the bottom line? And Mary Alice would have some form of this statement, if I don't give you these details, the bottom line won't make any sense. And so we've been in that dance for a lot of years. Would you get to the bottom line? If I don't give you the details, the bottom line won't make any sense. Well, I find myself in a strange place today because today I need to give the details. And if you're anything like me, you're going to be sitting out there saying, Mark, would you just get to the bottom line? And I'm going to say, though, if I don't give you these details, the bottom line won't make any sense. See, I think the truth of the matter is a lot of people read the story of Pontius Pilate and it doesn't compute. didn't for me when I was a kid. I mean, it's not like I understood that I was working at like a geometric proof, but I sort of was. I was thinking, Rome is in control of the world. Pilate is Rome's uh, potentate in Judea. And therefore, Pilate represents all the power in the world. Why is he backpedaling all throughout the trial of Jesus? Well, today I want to tackle that. Let, let me start by saying this. Maybe this will be the beginning of our fruitful understanding. The story of Jesus is a Jewish story. Practically everybody in, in, in the story is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish, his mother is Jewish, the disciples are Jewish, his friends are Jewish, his enemies are Jewish, the early church is Jewish. So primarily it's a Jewish story. Just about everybody in the story is Jewish. But as the church progressed, or as so-called Christianity progressed and became more European, and unfortunately anti-Semitic, there became a popular teaching that even is still in the groundwater today, which says the Jews crucified Jesus. At, at best, that's an overstatement, and at worst, it's patently false. It would be like saying if you imagine Jesus being American, and I, I do believe that if Jesus were in America for three years, people would want to crucify him. But you couldn't really say the Americans crucified Jesus because there are millions of people who love him and millions of people who hate him. So consequently, it is a very wrong thing to say that the Jews crucified Jesus. This all came up about 13 years ago with Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And a lot of my Jewish friends were deeply concerned, feeling like they were targeted in that, and I understand that. But in that, there was the question that came up, was it the Jews or the Romans who crucified Jesus? And the answer to that question is just not that simple. It's not that simple. You can't, you can't make that kind of statement. So what I want us to have is I want us to have an understanding of what happened with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you why I want to drill down today. 
The Bible tells us that the gospel, which you must believe in order to go to heaven, are three facts. That Christ died for your sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. That is what you must believe in order to go to heaven. Now, there's stuff in the Bible about Hezekiah, but whatever you believe about Hezekiah is not all that important. You know, there's stuff in the Bible about, you know, the articles in the tabernacle. Well, they're interesting, and they have meaning for us today, but what you believe about the tabernacle is not really all that important. But if you go to the issues that you must believe in order to go to heaven, then suddenly it gets very important that we understand what we're believing. So as we get closer to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I'm going to like drill down and give you some details so that you'll have full understanding of what went down that Friday. Um, if you want to understand the world, and again, the reason why I'm bringing that introduction to you is that Pilate is not Jewish. And we're going to understand as Pilate struggles to navigate this situation, one of the key things we want to understand is he's not Jewish. For the 500 years previous to Jesus' trial, the Jewish nation did not have a king. Uh, one had been promised but they have been governed by just about every power you can imagine. So from, for the last 500 years, the Jews have been under Babylon. They've been under the Medes, under the Persians, under the Greeks, under Alexander the Great, under the Seleucids and Ptolemies, and so on and so forth. So basically, they have been ruled by just about everybody. But in the first century, they were under the power of Rome. Now, for most of us who have studied Roman history in high school or college, <laughs> Roman history is kind of interesting because the Caesars looked like they were insane. But really, that happened after this. You get into guys like Caligula, Nero, and Domitian, so on and so forth, and they really were crazy. But in the early Caesars, you, you find um, at least guys who wanted to be somewhat benign in their treatment of conquered powers. If you go back to, say, Julius Caesar, um, Augustus, and Tiberius, who was on the throne during Jesus' trial, pretty much the Roman emperors only cared about two things of their conquered peoples. They wanted taxes collected, and they wanted no problems, no, no riots. So that's really it. I mean, all they really wanted from whether they're talking about Egypt or Mesopotamia or Judea, basically all they want is they want to collect taxes, and they don't want any problems. So one of the things that the Roman powers did in order to keep people sort of semi-happy was they would allow conquered peoples to have some form of self-governance as long as taxes were collected, as long as there were no riots. So you need to understand that before Pilate, and in just a few moments we'll talk about Pilate, that um, there was Rome in, power, Rome in place, but also there were other powers in place. So in AD 26, a young military commander was assigned by Rome to be governor of Judea. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever taken a promotion in order to climb the ladder of promotion that you didn't want or an assignment that you didn't want, but if you have, you understand Pontius Pilate because he wanted to be promoted, but he didn't care anything about going to Judea because it was so far away from Rome, he was afraid that he wasn't going to get noticed. But in AD 26, in order to climb the ladder, he went there. Here's something that's really, really important to understanding Jesus' trial. Pilate was the protege of a very powerful person. A very powerful person in Rome was responsible for Pilate being promoted to being prefect of Judea. Although Tiberius was Caesar at that time, um, his, he had a couple of issues. Number one was he was bored with being Caesar, and he really just wanted to kick back and relax. And his son Dresca was not ready to be emperor. So in that vacuum, there arose a very powerful man. There were a group of soldiers who were equestrian, and, and they rose to the ranks of becoming what was called the Praetorian Guard. 
It'd be like our secret service today. As you can imagine, the proximity of the person who guarded Caesar would allow him to build a relationship with Caesar. And that's what happened with the leader of the Praetorian Guard, whose name was Sejanus. Sejanus became extremely powerful in Rome. In fact, he was, he, he was bucking for power. A couple of times he tried to marry into Caesar's family and that blew up on him and didn't work. But he was so influential with Caesar that he basically talked Caesar into taking a five-year vacation to the island of Capri. And during that time, Sejanus ruled. Whatever he wanted happened. Senate was afraid of him. Everybody was afraid of this military man, Sejanus, whose power was growing and growing and growing. Sejanus only had one person between him and and Caesar, and that was Caesar's Caesar's son, Drusca. So here's what Sejanus did. He seduced his wife and talked her into helping him poison Drusca over a long period of time. So now it is just Caesar and Sejanus, and everybody assumes that if something happens to Tiberius, that somehow Sejanus is going to become emperor. But things have a way of blowing up. And they really blew up on Sejanus. We're not really sure how this happened. History's a little fuzzy on this. But it seems like somehow on the island of Capri, Caesar got word of what Sejanus had done to his son. And all of a sudden, he was the most unpopular man in Rome. He was brutally killed. His wife was killed. What happened to his children is unspeakable. And worse than that, anybody who had ever had anything to do with Sejanus, they were losing their lives. So the last person you want to be is Pontius Pilate, because he got his assignment because of his boss, Sejanus, with whom he was a favorite. Now, let's go back to AD 26. When Pilate got to Judea, he found a a jurisdictional nightmare. I don't know if you've ever had a boss who kind of put several people in charge, and so consequently nobody knew what anybody's responsibilities were. That's really what was in Judea during the time of Pilate's assignment. Because the Romans, as I said a few moments ago, they allowed people to have self-governance. Well, the Romans were very secular, and they understood that the Jewish people were very religious. So consequently, one of the concessions that Caesar made to the Jewish people was to allow them to have a religious governing body. Maybe this is TMI, but that that governing body was called the Sanhedrin. There were like 70 religious senators who acted on everything religious. For those of you who love the Bible, Nicodemus was one of those, so was Joseph of Arimathea. Now, (laughs) what Pilate discovered when he got to Judea was to the Jewish mindset, practically everything was religious. So when he got there, he discovered that the Sanhedrin felt empowered to pretty well make just about every decision that happened in Judean life. But it wasn't just the Sanhedrin that Pilate had to deal with. There was a complicating factor that other nations didn't have. Because... Years ago, the previous Caesar, who was Caesar when Jesus was born, the one who killed, uh, you know, the one who was, was emperor um, in that time, he had a drinking buddy in Rome, and his name was Herod. Now, Caesar wasn't, he wasn't savvy enough to realize the distinction. He, he thought Herod would be a great fit to sort of put in, in, in Judea and give him a, a, a palace what Herod didn't understand was, what Caesar didn't understand was that Herod wasn't really Jewish. He was a descendant of Esau. He was an Ida man, but that was lost on Caesar. So he installed Herod the Great. And by the way, he's the one who ordered all the boy babies killed in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. But in time, he died, and he had several sons. And so he cut up his kingdom and he assigned his sons. There was Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip, and the Herod that you and I know best, who was on 
the bench when Jesus was tried was Herod Antipas. He was also the one who killed John the Baptist. <clears throat> so when Herod gets to Judea, he discovers that he has to deal with the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious governing body. He also has to deal with the Herods, and so consequently, trying to figure out who has jurisdiction is a mess. Pilate, is, is, he's accustomed to strict military protocol, and yet when he gets to, when he gets to Israel... It's crazy. Now, the bigger problem was Pilate was not, he didn't have good pitch <clears throat> when it came to making decisions. And he was constantly stepping in holes. For all of you who are old and you remember the Andy Griffith show, Pilate was Barney Fife. Because he's always trying to impress Caesar in order to climb the ladder, and it's always backfiring on him. He doesn't understand the Jewish mindset. And let me give you an example, and this may be too much information. I just want you to understand what was going down the morning that, G that Jesus stood before Pilate. Um, <clears throat> to the Jewish mindset, it was very important to obey the second commandment. I mean, all the commandments, but especially the second commandment, no graven images. Because they had gone into captivity because of idolatry, and they were like, we don't ever want to go there again. Well, Pilate's predecessor, Gaius, had been very careful not to bring anything into Judea that had some sort of graven image like Pilate's insignia. See, on all their swords and stuff, there was this insignia, this Roman insignia. But to the Jewish mindset, that was a graven image. So Gaius had all that stuff taken off. But when Pilate got there, Pilate was like, I'm going to ram this down the Jews' throats. And so at night, he brings in all this armory that has all of the insignia of the Caesars on it. And when the Jews see that, they're like, no way. And so they send about 600 leaders down to Caesarea to tell Pilate, you got to take that stuff out. And so for like five days, they have this stalemate. So finally, Pilate figures, he's tired of this. So he tells these Jewish leaders, meet me down at the amphitheater in Caesarea, and we're going to straighten this out. Well, when he gets down there, he says, look, you either let this thing go or I'm going to cut your head off. Well, that worked in Rome. It didn't, work in, it didn't work in Judea because all 600 of these Jewish leaders pulled their collars down and exposed their neck and said, do it. Pilate's not used to that. And he understands if he slaughters 600 innocent people, it's going to get back to Rome and he's going to be in real trouble. So you know what he does? He backs down. And from that moment on, the blood is in the water. And it's like every time Pilate tries to ram Rome down the throat of the Jewish people, it backfires on him and Caesar... Choose Pilate out. Well, I hope you understand what I mean when I say things were complicated. In, it was in this mess the trial of the ages happened. New Spring, for all of you watching online or the North Auditorium watching on television, I want you to understand some things that I don't think a lot of Christians understand about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I appreciate you allowing me to give you this detail because a lot of times I think we have a, a somewhat flawed or hazy idea of what went down that morning. I want you to know who was really behind the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because the question was asked 13 years ago, was it the Jews or the Romans? And the answer is it's just not that easy. Basically, it was the religious leaders. And here's what's quirky about that. The religious leaders that oversaw and demanded the execution of Jesus Christ were a collection of leaders from the far religious right and the far religious left. It was like the, the ultra-fundamentalist religionists and the ultra-liberal ultra -liberal religionists. They never got together on anything. 
They were always enemies. The one thing they colluded on was that they hated Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why that is. And it's the reason why Jesus is hated today. Wherever Jesus Christ is, somebody loses power because he's king and he's Lord. And so consequently, power centers, whether it's the media or the government or entertainment in Hollywood, wherever Jesus is, power is threatened. And so consequently, these, even though these, these people had diametrically 180-degree opposed religious views, they got together on one thing is they wanted Jesus dead. Now, another question that you may have is, whatever happened to the crowds who celebrated Jesus' triumphal entry? You ever wonder about that? I mean, next Sunday, we have Palm Sunday, and there's the story of all these people who celebrated Jesus and threw palm branches in front of him. There is a very good answer to that question that helps us understand the crucifixion. These religious leaders, these elitists who wanted Jesus dead, arrested Jesus in secret. In fact, their fear was that they would upset the crowds. So consequently, they arrested him at night. That's why Judas was important, because Judas had said, I will help you identify him at night. So that's why Judas became important to these guys. And let me go to the third thing. It was why Rome was needed. You know, there's a question that's come up through the years, and I've been part of this discussion in sermons, and and I've been part of it in, in writing, There seems to be an issue over the question, who had authority to bring capital punishment in this time? And I've actually heard ministers say, and I think I may have actually said something pretty close to this, that the reason why these religious leaders went to Pilate was the Jews did not have ability to bring about capital punishment. And and we draw that from the gospel of John chapter 18, where... um, Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But these leaders said, but we have no right to execute anyone. They objected. And so that's been the comfortable explanation. The reason why these religious leaders brought Pilate into it was they didn't have the power to execute Jesus. But that's not true. Because what we know was there was a point where these leaders tried to stone Jesus earlier. And beyond that, you know the book of Acts, just a few Um, months later, they're going to stone Stephen to death. So consequently, these leaders did. I mean, Rome didn't really care as long as they didn't start a riot. Basically, they could have done that. In fact, Pilate would say in John 19, verse 6, you take him and crucify him. So consequently, they had the ability to take Jesus' life. So going back to that question, what happened to the crowds who celebrated Jesus? Here's what you must understand. These elitist leaders wanted deniability so that when those crowds who celebrated Jesus say, why did you crucify Jesus? They would say, it wasn't us. It was the Romans. And so hopefully that will help you understand crucifixion of Jesus. Now, all the charges that were brought against Jesus were Roman charges. Um, they, they said he told people not to pay taxes, which isn't true. Jesus told people to pay taxes. They charged him with causing a disturbance, which, as you know, that was a real problem for Rome. And then on top of that, the only charge that they were really able to try to make stick was that he claimed to be a king and he was starting a revolution. So with all that backstory, that's how one Friday morning, nearly 2,000 years ago, the trial of Jesus happened greatest trial of all the ages. The case of the Roman Empire versus Jesus of Nazareth, the charge, treason, claiming he was a king, presiding judge, the honorable Pontius Pilate, prefect of the region of Judea. 
So as Pilate begins this case that Friday, early that Friday morning as Jesus stands before him, it doesn't take him long to figure out two things. Number one, the crowd that brought him to him had an ulterior motive. And secondly, this man is innocent. And so Pilate thinks it's going to be five minutes. I mean, I'm going to be in, I'm going to be out, and we'll get back and go play golf today or whatever the Roman leaders did on Friday mornings. It's, going to, it's not going to take any time at all. But the mob hit Pilate where it hurt. Remember, he'd made a lot of mistakes. It's very likely that Sejanus' thing had come up, and Pilate didn't want his name to come up before Caesar. In John chapter 19, verse 12, the Bible says, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but they kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Do you see how they caught Pilate in their grasp? Pilate's like, this man is innocent. They were saying, you know what? You're no buddy of Caesar. You claim you're Caesar's friend, but we'll go tell Caesar on you that you're letting people walk around and claim to be king and start riots. Well, that's why Pilate was in trouble. Now, this thing is going to whip around on us, and it's going to come around to 2017 because you and I are where Pilate was. I don't want to sugarcoat this. I want to make it real. This world hates Jesus. It's very clear, very obvious. They don't dislike him. They hate him. No one less than Jesus said this. In John 7, Jesus, speaking to his followers, said, the people of this world can't hate you. Listen to this. They hate me because I tell them they do evil things. Well, you know, in our culture today, all you have to say is that sin is sin, and all of a sudden, you're a hate monger. You, understand, you know what I'm saying? And, and so consequently, no, this world doesn't like hearing what they do is evil. And, and here's the weird thing about it. Those who say, those human beings, those people who say sin is sin, we're flawed. We're sinners ourselves. So consequently, you understand that if the perfect son of God shows up and he says to people what you're doing is sin, there is enormous hatred. And today we sanitize that with all kinds of things, and we say, well, it's not constitutional, and it's not that. It's just people hate Jesus. It is what it is. So you and I sit in a world today, and we are where Pilate was, because Pilate asked the question in Matthew 27, verse 22. Pilate said, what should I do with Jesus? Now, I mean, it was, a, it was a stupid question because he knows Jesus is innocent. Seven times he basically says so and tries to work out some kind of compromise. I mean, what do you do with an innocent person? You set them free. But Pilate is asking, what do I do with Jesus? And that's a question that you and I have to answer. And let me tell you why it might not be as easy as it sounds. Pilate is caught in between doing the politically correct thing and the right thing. And in America today, we have... So many people who would consider themselves followers of Jesus, and yet they haven't been able to make the call. They're caught in between doing the politically correct thing and following Jesus. And so consequently, they nominally follow Jesus, but constantly they shift toward doing what is a politically correct thing in order to be popular with the crowd. Now, as Pilate sits where we sit, you understand Pilate thought himself to be superior to everybody around him. He was educated. He was a Roman. He'd been part of the Praetorian Guard. He'd been educated in the finest institutions. Pilate thought he was smarter than everybody. Pilate thought, you know what? I can get out of this. I mean, I, I got this innocent man here, and I really need to let him go free, but the mob is over here, and they're threatening me with all kind of stuff, but I'm a smart man. I didn't get here by accident, so 
there's some things I can do. And he, he tries several of them. And I want to go through them real quickly because people try these things today. The first thing he tried to do was to shift the responsibility to somebody else. In the middle of the trial, it sort of comes out that Jesus was from Galilee. Remember the Herods? Herod Antipas oversees Galilee. Pilate's like, okay, let me read this to you. Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Let this be Herod's problem, who was in Jerusalem at the time. Well, Herod and his buddies, they kicked Jesus around. They ridiculed. They mocked him. They dressed him in an elegant robe. But look at this. They sent him back to Pilate. Pilate basically said, thanks, old buddy, but I'm no, I don't want this. This is your problem. So Pilate's tried to get rid of Jesus, but there he is. He's standing there again. So now he tries the second thing. He tries to come down in the middle and have it both ways, like a lot of Christians I know. Pilate's trying to figure out, how do I make the crowd happy? And how do I set this innocent man free? Now, read with me. Mark 15, verse 15. Look at this clause. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. He has Jesus flogged. Now, we, this, um, it, it breaks down for us in John 19, 1, because it says, Pilate laid open Jesus' back with a leaded whip, and the soldiers made a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and robed him in, in royal cloth. Hell, king of the Jews, they mocked and struck him with their fists. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. Pilate's like, well, this man's innocent, but the crowd has got thirst for blood. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down the middle, and I'm just going to beat him really bad, make him look really pathetic, and then I'm going to bring him out, and people are going to be sympathetic and say, okay, you sort of fixed what was broken. But you need to understand that they didn't just beat him with a whip like you and I think about a whip. A whip in those days was a wooden handle and nine leather thongs that came out of it, and at the end of those thongs were jagged bits of metal and glass and bone. And the lictor in those days, the Roman lictor, would take the, person who, the poor person who was to be beaten, tie their hands behind their back, bend them over, attach them to a pole so that the skin on the back was taut. And time after time, they would bring the whip down and those jagged bits of metal, bone, and glass would embed into the skin. And then the lictor would rip the skin off the back. Some, Josephus says, sometimes it would expose the internal organs. And so Pilate has thought, this crowd wants blood, but I don't really want to kill him, so maybe I'll just beat him real bad. And he brings Jesus out, now bloody, not even recognizable as human being, Isaiah would say. And Pilate says, look at the man. Don't you feel sorry for him? Pilate's trying to have it both ways. But look how the crowd responded. At the sight of him, they begin yelling, crucify him, crucify him. It didn't work. There are Christians I know that with one group of friends, they can rip Jesus. They can rip his views of right and wrong. They can rip his views of human sexuality. They can rip his views of salvation. And yet they can come to church and, and worship both ways, politically correct. Pilate found out he couldn't do it. And the third thing that Pilate tried to do was to use his superior intellect to come up with a creative solution. Pilate's like, I, I, this, I don't want to kill this man. He's innocent, but the crowd is howling for him. So I'm going to use my superior thinking process to come up with something that is so good, they're going to have to like go with what my plan is. There was a guy, and of course there were criminals in those days like there are criminals today. Um, but the Romans in order to make a good gesture to the, the Jewish faith, 
every Passover, it was the Roman government's plan to give them one person who was on death row to set that person free. And oftentimes it would be some hero of the Jewish people that had been arrested because of something that that hero did that inflamed Rome. But not this time. Pilate looks in the prison and he sees this guy named Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is a bad guy. I mean, I mean he, was, he, was, he was a gangster. I mean, the Bible tells us that he robbed people and he killed people and he was an anarchist. I mean, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan and the, good, you know, the guy was on the road from Jerusalem, Jericho, and he got jumped and beaten and left for dead. That's the kind of deal Barabbas would do. So when Barabbas got arrested, everybody breathed a deep sigh of relief. Get that guy off the street. So Pilate is looking at this and he's saying, do you want me to release Barabbas to you or Jesus? And he's thinking to himself, Barabbas is such a bad guy that they're going to say, we don't like this Jesus very much, but we don't want Barabbas roaming our streets. And Pilate's like, yeah, I got him now. And yet to his amazement, the crowd says, give us Barabbas. Today I find people that they're confronted with Jesus and they say to themselves, oh, I don't really want to believe and I don't want to reject, so I'll just kick it around, I'll discuss it. But just like with Pilate, Jesus is still standing there. And then the fourth thing he tried is something I see a lot of people try today. Pilate tried to pretend there was no right answer. You know, Pilate's trying to sort out this thing the leaders have said that this guy says he's a king, and so Pilate asked him, well, are you a king? And Jesus said, I mean, I'm putting, I'm not, I'm just paraphrasing. Jesus said, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And he said, and that, you know, he said, everyone who knows the truth will understand what I'm saying. And it's at that point, you know, here's the deal. Let me tell you something. You know what I think Jesus is trying to do? I think he's trying to reach out to Pilate because he's giving him a little gospel here. He's giving him a little plan of salvation. This is Pilate's opportunity to say, would you tell me more about that, please? This kingdom, not of this world thing? But Pilate snorts. What is truth? Basically, Pilate is buying into the postmodern concept that's so popular today. Pilate was saying, you know what? Nobody can know. And I meet people like that today, that when they're confronted with the claims of Christ, it's like, well, nobody can know. It's as if ignorance is sophisticated but it's not. And then finally, the fifth thing that Pilate tried was he tried giving up. Because after all the things he had tried to do, he wanted some way to communicate, I don't want to kill this man, but I don't have the will to do the right thing. And so according to the book of Matthew, Pilate brings out or has brought out a bowl of water and he washes his hands and says, I am innocent. But the problem was not Pilate's hands problem was Pilate's heart. And the water could never wash away the guilt that Pilate had, just as though rituals and things cannot wash away the guilt that people have today. In effect, Pilate was saying, as I refuse to decide. To refuse to decide is to decide. If someone were driving you and you were sitting in the passenger seat and the person driving you parked the car over a railroad track and a train is bearing down on you, you have a choice. You can either get out of the car or you can stay in the car. Suppose you say, I'm not going to decide. You just decided. 
And I think there are people today that see there is Jesus, and, and, I'm not, and, and if I accept him, then that puts me on a slippery slope. My life has got to change. So you know what? I don't want to reject him. I don't want to accept him. I just refuse to decide. To refuse is to decide. Well, as I close out this message, we clearly see that Pilate failed, didn't he? He failed terribly. He failed because he, he, he didn't understand five things. Let me go through them real quickly. <laughs> this isn't grammatically correct. But he failed to understand who was on trial before who. Pilate thought Jesus was standing on trial before him, but history has shown us it was really Pilate on trial before Jesus. I meet people today who are confronted with Jesus Christ, and it's somehow, well, if Jesus rises to my standard of of my of standard of my ethics, or if he rises to the standard of what I think is correct, or if Jesus is somehow politically correct, then I will accept him. But what we need to understand, and I'm not trying to be harsh today, just straight, because I owe it to you. Jesus is not on trial before us. We're on trial before him. Jesus is already going to heaven. You understand, he, he's not interested in meeting our standard. The important thing is that we are on trial before him, and that's what Pilate failed to understand. Second thing that Pilate didn't understand was he didn't have the final word. At one point in the trial, Pilate, frustrated, looked at Jesus and said, Don't you understand that I have the power to kill you or set you free? And Jesus kindly said, You don't have any power at all that God didn't give you. I was thinking about this, driving to the campus this week, trying to think about how to explain this. And, and I was eastbound on 21st, coming from Andover, where I live, and head toward the church. And I came to the intersection of um, 21st and 127th over here. And just as I came to the intersection, a couple of geese walked, waddled slowly out in front of me. And you know what they look like, those Canadians, when they walk, you know. <laughs> so I, I braked my car and stopped, and, but I was worried about oncoming traffic. Because, see, I had seen them walk from the grass into the street, but I was worried about the eastbound traffic because I knew they couldn't see them. And so, sure enough, the geese walked right over in front of the eastbound traffic, and a massive truck was bearing down on these geese. And as the truck slowed down, the driver laid on the horn. Now, I don't speak goose. <laughs> but I read expressions. And that, when that truck driver laid on the horn, it made that lead goose mad. And he turned to that truck and began to honk back at him. And when the truck driver stopped, that goose turned and strutted off. And you could see him, it's like, I stared that truck down. Well, let me just be straight with you. There's only one reason why that goose wasn't pate. A roadkill. The kindness of that truck driver. There are people I meet today that think they have their superior intellect. God is like saying, hey, you're going down the wrong track. But they turn around and they honk back at God. And when God doesn't kill them, it's like, boy, I stare God down. But what they don't realize is the only reason they're still breathing is the fact that Almighty God still loves them. Am I talking to you today?
Pilate didn't understand he didn't have the final word. Third thing Pilate didn't understand was that pleasing the crowd was a horrible strategy because A, he could never please them, and B, they couldn't do anything for him. See, here's the weird thing. Some of you claim to follow Jesus, but you're desperately trying to please the crowd. And you know what? You've already embraced things that you don't believe in. You've already embraced things that you used to shrink back from. And here's the weird thing that you've discovered. By embracing that, you thought you would be accepted, but what you've discovered is the world has got a darker place to go. And now you're being summoned into that darker place. What you don't understand is you're never going to please this world. It's dark. And here's the, the main thing. You've got to understand that five seconds after you die, media, Hollywood, pop culture can't do a thing for you. Five seconds after I die, my life is in the hands of Jesus Christ. That's why it's more important for me, for me to know him and to please him than to please this crazy mixed up world. Pleasing the crowd is a terrible strategy. You can never please them. They they can't do you any good anyway. Now, the fourth and the fifth thing are the ones that mean the most to me, and they're kind of similar. Pilate clearly just wanted this thing to be over. To him, the trial of Jesus Christ was a distraction with getting on with his life. I mean, he didn't want this trial. And yet what he didn't understand was it would turn out to be the only thing that mattered in his life. There's only one reason why you and I know the name Pontius Pilate. is because early one Friday morning, the Son of God stood in his courtroom. And let me go ahead and give you the fifth thing because it sort of piggybacks on that. The trial he hated was the opportunity of a lifetime. You know, they could be talking to somebody here and it's like, you're here, but it's, are you watching? And it's like, yeah, I don't really know about this Jesus thing. But I'm dating this girl, and she's a Christian, and I kind of want to, like, deepen this relationship. So I go to church with her. Just like, wow, I wish this thing was over. What you don't understand is this is the opportunity of a lifetime. The fact that Jesus Christ stands before you with open arms, the one who died for your sins, while it may feel like a distraction, while it may feel like it's uncomfortable today, it is the opportunity of a lifetime. Because when you die, it won't matter what you did for a living, where you lived, it won't matter what you drove, what your house looked like, what designer you clothes you wore, it won't matter who liked you, who didn't like you, all that's going to matter is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's all that will matter. Do you know him? Today, I've shared with you a story of a guy who was conflicted. He didn't want to reject Jesus and didn't want to accept him. But at the end, he wound up rejecting him. I want to encourage you today, if you've never really made Jesus Lord of your life, you may have been in church, but like today, it gets really clear. Like the haze and the mist is blown away. And you know who he is, and you realize that there has to be a choice. It's Jesus or it's this world that's fading away. And you've decided in your heart and life that you want to receive Jesus, the one who died for you. I would like to assist you in that. And here's what I want to do. The Bible says this, that the only way to have a relationship with him is to ask for a gift. It is a gift. It's a totally free gift. It's not in joining a church or doing, doing community service. The only way to have a relationship with Jesus is to ask for a gift. He's already paid for it. Hey, listen, when Jesus carried the cross, I'm not trying to be cute. He did the heavy lifting. 
He went to the cross. He paid the price for your sins so that you wouldn't have to pay the price. And today he's got a deal on the table. And he says, if you will come just like you are, declare spiritual bankruptcy and come before the Son of God who loves you and ask him to be your Lord and Savior, that he'll forgive you of every sin, that God will write your name in the book of life and that you will have everlasting life as a reception of a free gift. How about that? Are you into that? You ready for it? You open to it? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me, and then we're going to pray a prayer. And these aren't magic words, but I'm going to pray it slowly. So if you want to pray it with me, you can. You can, you can pray it out loud or you can pray it silently. God hears your heart. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe his blood settled my debt. And then I believe he arose from the grave. Therefore, he is alive. I want Jesus to be my king. I choose Jesus. Please forgive me and make me your child. Thank you in Jesus' name. Now, I know when you prayed that prayer, you're like, Mark, I don't know what happened to me, but I prayed it with you. That's why we're very, we, we want to give you a gift, and this will cost you nothing. North Auditorium or South Auditorium, outside there's an area called guest services, and all you got to do is go back there and take your talk to his card and say, I pray with Mark. Let me show you what's in here. There is um, a DVD, a book I wrote that kind of explained, let me hold it right side up. And then the same Bible that I preach from, I want, you to have, I want you to have a copy of God's Word. So if you just pray with me, I know it gets really congested at the end of the service, but this is so big. Please come receive this gift. I promise you, nobody will hassle, hassle you, stalk you, <laughs> try to even engage you in conversation that you don't want. All you got to do is say, I pray with Mark. Please come get this. It's our gift to you. Thanks for being here. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.